points for the aliens. Points for the saucer. Ten for the large invader. Thirty for the small invader. Twenty for the medium. Random for the command ship. Where do you get it? Where do you get it? The Atari Age Star. You can shoot, you can shoot, you can hide, you can shoot, you can shoot, 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 you can hide behind a shield. You can shoot, 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 hide, hide, hide. You can shoot all you wanna, but don't you let them land. No, I won't, no, I won't, but you gotta know the strategy. Yes, sir, yes, sir. What do you shoot? What do you shoot? It's not the space monsters. Take a gander at the game, at the online store, at the Atari Age store, at the online e commerce Atari Age store. What do you shoot? What do you shoot? What do you shoot? What do you shoot? Where do you get it? What do you shoot? What do you shoot? What do you shoot? You can shoot. You can hide. You can shoot. You can hide. You can shoot, 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 hide, hide, hide. You can shoot all you want, but don't you let them land. No, I won't. No, I won't. But you gotta know the strategy. It's a game from Taito that's making all the hoopla. Put the token in the slot. In the slot, you need a quarter. Move the laser cannon across the screen. Cross 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 the screen. Pong went out the window and the pinballs at the curb. Change the approach of a traveling gamer. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Then you gotta know the strategy. Ever meet a fellow by the name of Chicago? Chicago. 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 No! And he doesn't have a strategy. Well, hey there, everybody. Thank you for listening to episode number nine of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. As uh, always... This is your host, Janitor Sean, and wow, it's been quite an eventful past couple of weeks. <laughs> what do I have to talk about? Of course, uh, I'm just going to jump right into what I have to talk about. Midwest Gaming Classic. Two weeks ago from when you're hearing this, I had planned, I had wanted to do a live version of episode eight about Super Pac-Man, but just to be safe, I had recorded a regular version in case things didn't go off without a hitch. And of course you heard, um, I ended up releasing the version that I had recorded ahead of time. And, uh, thing is, I was afraid that maybe the Wi-Fi wouldn't have been good at the hotel or I wouldn't have had the proper software to do the streaming. I actually found some good streaming software. I did a couple of tests with it worked perfectly. The Wi-Fi at the hotel at Midwest Gaming Classic was surprisingly really, really good. But the problem is I just didn't have enough time to prepare everything for a live stream. I had uh, a keynote presentation going <laughs> I ha and um, just, just to, t to actually script everything, try everything, get the presentation going. I just didn't have enough time to do what I wanted to do. Otherwise, I it would have been a go. It would have been a go. But hey, it was still a, a great time out there. Shout out to Dan Lucen, who was extremely patient working with both me and uh, Jimmy G from Pie Factory Podcast, uh, helping us get our table going. And he really bent over backwards for us. And and I he was just so good to us. He really was. And Seriously, this year I had a freaking blast. And the thing is, I hardly left the table. The only times I left the table were um, I had to go check into my hotel on Saturday. I didn't stay on site because by the time that uh, uh, Jimmy G and I had decided to uh, try to get a table over at Midwest Gaming Classic, the hotel had long been booked. So I had to go to the Overflow Hotel, the Embassy Suites, which was wonderful. They were great over there. Very comfortable place. The only problem I had with... 
the embassy suites was that they use those tiny pillows. What is it with hotels now that they're using tiny pillows instead of full-size pillows? Come on, people. But, you know, I went over, I checked into the embassy, got my key, unloaded my stuff, and um, I grabbed a little bit of lupper while I was out. And um, once or twice I checked the vendor tent. I, I didn't have a lot of time. I didn't want to leave Jim by himself for too long. I, I didn't want to make him wait alone at the table for too long, so I made it like two quick runs through the vendor tent. And what really surprised me about the vendor tent was how much retro stuff there actually was. Because I'd always heard that there really wasn't hardly anything that wasn't hardly. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I'd heard that there was hardly any retro items in the vendor tent the past few years. And uh, it was built mostly like recent, um, like stuff that maybe recently be became considered vintage or retro <laughs> like GameCube and stuff, but I saw a lot of Atari stuff. I saw, oh man, I've been really kind of wanting on and off to get a Commodore 64, and there were several to be had for what I thought were fairly reasonable prices, but the problem is I also want a disk drive. I don't want to just have a bare Commodore 64 with no way to just save and load stuff there, so I can never find a Commodore 64 and a 1541 compatible disk drive at the same time. So I didn't see any 1541s there by the time I had checked the, uh, the vendor tent and something I've been doing lately was giving a shout out to other podcasts. And the one that I want to shout out to this time is guys, games and beer. And uh, they're based out of Racine, Wisconsin. Now I had never heard of them until last year's Midwest gaming classic. Uh, when Jimmy G and I were kind of roaming around looking at, uh, other exhibitors there and uh, we bumped into this guy who handed us his business card and his name on his business card was drunk Larry. And he, he said, Hey, have you guys heard of guys, games and beer? And we were like, no, tell us about it. He said, well, basically we get drunk and we talk about video games <laughs> and, uh, that's fairly accurate actually. Cause I started listening to those like, yep, that's what, that's what they do. All right. But one thing I got to say, actually, I got a lot of things I got to say about guys, games and beer. First of all, despite the get drunk part, they really do a heck of a good show. It's very professional. Uh, they have a very strict format. The first thing they do is they have what they call beer court, where they um, they drink a certain type of beer. They review it. They say what's good about it, what's bad about it, whether they would actually drink it again themselves if it weren't for the podcast. And um, then they talk about whatever their topic is. And quite often they'll have a special guest, like uh, somebody who just opened up a gaming lounge, for example, they had on. And they do a really, really good job at their show. And they are really, really nice guys. And I can't really just say guys. And it's really interesting they call themselves Guys, Games, and Beer because there are women involved in their show, too, both on the front end and behind the scenes. But uh, and they were... They were such good people. They were so good to us this year. They really were. And uh, what they like to do at Midwest Gaming Classic is pull people in and you know interview them briefly. Hey, uh, are you an exhibitor here? Who are you with? Uh, what cool things have you seen at the show and everything? So they pulled Jim and me aside and uh, when we went to visit their exhibit, and they said, hey, let's interview you for the podcast. We're like, okay. And uh, they usually did the same thing and they had everybody they wanted to interview kind of like huddled together, like in, in, uh, in one side of the room. And at one point during the show, like one of the hosts of guys, games and beer started going to everybody and handed out pint glasses with their logo etched in them. And they're, they're really nice pint glasses. And it was like, Whoa, these guys are really going all out. It was very impressive and very generous too. So 
give them a listen, guys, games and beer. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. Uh, they do tend to get a little bit liberal. So uh, with the, they tend to get a little bit liberal with their diction. So if you're language sensitive, just beware of that. But hey, they're worth checking out. And uh, other things that happened during uh, Midwest Gaming Classic, I, I went to a vendor table and uh, I got a couple of boxed copies of Wizard of War and Gorf for Atari 2600. I upgraded a couple of loose carts and the price was really, really good on those. And I was like, whoa, I better jump on this. And if I realized, wait a minute, this is Sean Kelly's table. <laughs> yeah, Sean Kelly is a little bit of a legend in uh, in Atari stuff nowadays. I think he prefers the 5200. He's not a big 2600 fan. And one of the reasons he's legendary is that his prices are always very reasonable. He's got a great store in Norwich, Illinois called Video Games Then and Now. Highly recommend. He's been around for a long time and a great, great, great store there. And across the hall from where our table was set up, there was a vendor called Pack Rat Games based out of uh, Salt Lake City, I think. And they were there last year. They sell homebrew games for, um, I believe, uh, well, 2600 for sure, and Vectrex, and I believe Odyssey 2. And last year, I got a 2600 title from them. Actually, I got two 2600 titles for them. I got This Planet Sucks, which is also available on the Atari Age Store. And I also got another title from them last year. The name of the game is Explosive Diarrhea. <laughs> it's not as graphic as you might think. It's more, the title is more the premise than the actual action. Uh, the The goal is like you're guiding a bunch of rednecks across a field full of landmines to get to the uh, porta potty on the other side. <laughs> and uh, basically you just have to memorize patterns in that game to make sure they get over safely and they don't get exploded by landmines. <laughs> but, uh, this year I also got two new, well, and this year, I also got two homebrews from them that I tried out, and I really, really liked. There's one called Jammed, and uh, this con this concept I've seen in other places, so it wasn't a new concept, but I really did enjoy the gameplay. What there is, there's this car on the screen, and there are these blocks that you have to slide across, and when you slide the blocks across the screen, you have to clear a pattern so that the car can drive away. And uh, there was another game called Muncher that I tried out. Of course, when I see the title Muncher, I immediately think, oh, is this a Pac-Man style game? Well, it's not really a Pac-Man style game, but I, I gave it a couple of go-rounds and I thought, wow, this is a really cool game. And unfortunately, I have not yet played it since I bought it, so I don't remember what you're supposed to do on that thing. But uh, um, And I will, I'll, I'll be sure to get back when I uh, have more time with it, but uh Midwest Gaming Classic, lots of fun. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, when Dan Lewison was going back and forth between uh, Jim and me over email about getting our table set up, he had told us that if you want to attract people to your table and get some exposure, you got to have something for people to do. You can't just be sitting there and just trying to attract people over. So he said, have some games there they can play if you can. So what we did, even though our podcast is an arcade podcast, Jim came up with the idea. He's like, hey, you know what? Why don't we promote Atari 7800 homebrews, especially by Bob DiCrescenzo? So he set up his Raspberry Pi on a 7800 emulator with uh, a bunch of uh, homebrews, a bunch of homebrew ROMs from Bob. And uh, we got permission for that, by the way. <laughs> and I brought my 7800 and some actual homebrew cartridges. Since I was going to promote this podcast, I brought games that I had been talking about 
on this podcast. And I also had my Mateos cart loaded up with a few of the ROMs that have not yet been released as cartridges so people can demo them. And we could also say, oh yeah, by the way, they're going to be released on Atari Age pretty soon, so keep your eyes open. And what was really awesome was we actually had a cartridge copy of Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest that Bob DiCrescenzo offered us for the show, which I thought, I've, I've said before, Bob DiCrescenzo is a really nice guy. Oh my God, he never ever fails to just make my jaw drop with his generosity. Uh, he had heard that I had, ha I had trouble getting the, uh, the ROM working on my Mateos cart. So he said, can I send you the cartridge and you can just send it back when you're done. I was like, yeah. So we had that. Um, I had uh, super circus Atari age loaded up on my Mateos cart and people were coming by. They stopped to play it. And I did a couple of twin galaxies, world record attempts, uh, if you don't want a spoiler, uh, skip ahead about a minute or two. Um, I have the Twin Galaxies world record for the 7800 Super Pac-Man homebrew, but it was only like 90,000, which is kind of lame. So I figured, you know what? I should make that a little bit higher, see if I can go higher. So I did a few attempts, made it up to 150,550, and I submitted it to Twin Galaxies, and a few days later it was approved. So now the world record is 150,550. Still a pretty not mind-blowing score, but hey, it's something. Oh, and right after I got that score, there's a guy named Steven Lucas out here in the Chicago area who hangs out, I think, at the Galloping Ghost Arcade a lot. And I'd never met him before. I didn't know this was him. But he was he was kind of commenting. He's like, yeah, that's not the greatest score in the world. I mean, people could probably get higher than that. I said, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And he sat down. He played the uh, Atari 7800 Super Pac-Man. I handed the control over to him. I said, here, you want to try it? And... He got up to 180,000 <laughs> and uh, I offered, I said, dude, you want to do it again? I'll, I'll record you. You can submit to twin galaxies. He's like, nah, that's okay. Uh, I did post video of, of the last few moments of his gameplay on the uh, Atari 7800 homebrew podcast, Facebook page. If you want to check it out. And also my friend Duke, who is a, uh, if you go to an arcade in the Chicago area, you will eventually meet Duke Dang. Uh, he's a very, very chatty, sociable guy. He's one of those people who has to meet everybody in the world, and he'll go. He'll he'll just walk up to you at random and say, "Hey, hey, my name's Duke. How you doing?" And he'll, you know, and he'll want to make friends with you right away. But he's been uh, he's very active on the Twin Galaxies forums, and he messaged me one day and he said, "Hey, you know what? Someone took down." your Pac-Man collection score, specifically the Pac-Man specific game on that cart, fast mode. I had a, a score of about 244,000 something. Well, somebody beat me by about a thousand points. So I did several attempts at Midwest Gaming Classic to uh, reclaim my record. And I eventually did. I made it to 275,620. What I did for with my 7,800... My 7800 is modded with uh, your standard AV mod with, you know, two audio outputs, one video output. So what I did was I split the signal. I used a couple of splitters so that I had one signal going to a little tiny TV that I was watching and another signal going to a bigger TV that was facing away from the table so people passing by could watch. And that's also how they were able to play. So like when there were people were coming out to play uh, Crystal Quest, I could see what they were doing and I could kind of tell them how to play the game. And so I did that with my world record attempts too. So there were people who would stop and watch for a while, which I thought was really cool. So that was how my Midwest Gaming Classic went. 
And the very next day, like Midwest Gaming Classic ended on Sunday. The very next day, my wife and I headed out for a Las Vegas trip, which uh, that was kind of eventful because as we were leaving for the airport, my wife got a text that our flight had been canceled. (laughs) So she called Southwest Airlines in a panic and miraculously got straight through to an agent in no time at all. And the agent said, well, can you make it to the airport an hour sooner? And my wife said, we will make it happen. And we did. We got there. We, we got there in time. So everything went off without a hitch. Had a great time. Except my BiPAP machine broke down during in the middle of the trip. So that wasn't very fun. Uh, so I basically had to sleep dealing with my apnea, unfortunately. <laughs> And uh, when I got back, and and the thing is, my sleep medicine provider that I see, they're not open until the Tuesday after we get back. And uh, when we got back, a friend of mine said, I have a spare machine here. You want to just use mine? I was like, yes, please. And so he may have literally saved my life with that thing. (laughs) So it's been crazy here. Um, Oh, yeah, my Atari 7800, the second one that I got that I was talking about, my my modding lately. And uh, everything works fine now. With one exception, it does not want to let me pull out Atari 7800 cartridges. It's got like a death grip on that. I'm trying to figure out if there's a way that I can fix that. So that's a lot of fun. I'm not talking about the problem with that little plastic ring that's around the cartridge port. That has nothing to do with it. I, at one point, actually removed that whole ring. This was just the bare cartridge port. And that thing is... It just doesn't want to let go of Atari 7800 cartridges. If I try to pull those things out, I run the risk of breaking the motherboard. That's how tight that grip is. 2600 cartridges, including a Magic and uh, the Activision games that have been known to, to give the 7800 physical problems like that, they're fine. But 7800 cartridges, that's another story. So that's going to be interesting figuring that out. Um, and what else do I have to say? Wow. In other news, I have new Patreon sponsors, in addition to Jimmy G, whom I thank very much for his generosity with Patreon.com. I also extend a huge thank you to Richard Valdez and Aladdin Controllers, both very, very generous with their patronage, I guess. So thank you, all three of you guys. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. And if you would like to help out as well, the uh, URL for that is www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash homebrew78. Oh, and I totally missed some feedback about Combat 1990 from Grey Defender. I should have caught it last episode, but I totally forgot. Sorry, Glenn, if you're listening. But he says, okay, finally dusted off my 7800 and put in Combat 1990 to test it out. This is my two cents. For a little background, I hold the original 1977 Atari Combat in high regards, really, I believe, sort of a masterpiece for its time, in that it had so many variations all stuffed into a 2K cartridge and was fun, assuming you had two people playing. Yeah, kind of hard to play that with one game. (laughs) Anyway, he says, uh, fast forward to 1990, this prototype, I assume it's a prototype because it does not feel complete to me. The spirit of the game is there. The gameplay mechanic, the movement, firing, etc. However, with a few important differences. I really miss the background motor slash tank sound for one. That's a big one. Right away, I tried the game select button looking for different game variations. Where are they? What if I want to play as a B-1 bomber or a F-15 or something? On the positive side, I like that you can move backwards, and the addition of shields is nice. 
I like the additional tanks in the playfield, which makes the game playable as a single player. Cooperative play is also a nice bonus. I do like the score font, although on my TV it was hard to discern. I believe with some additional work and polish, and adding a few additional game variations could make this a much better game. Having said that, until you mentioned it, I never heard of it. This is another reason why I enjoy listening to your show. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you for those kind words. And technically, it wasn't really 1990. It was just part of the name. It was really 2003, I believe. I think it was 2000. Did I say that in uh, the Combat 1990 episode? Well, whatever I said, that's what it was. (laughs) And, And like I said before... It's not that it's a prototype, it's more that it is a homebrew that was made during a very limited time as part of a contest. So, of course, there are going to be some limitations, and uh, it was done by somebody who was a big combat fan as well. But yeah, I can totally see how you could uh, have a hard time discerning the score font on a TV set, especially if you have a cathode ray tube set. I mean, I use use one of those newfangled HDTVs myself. So maybe that helped me out a little bit. But yeah, I totally agree with your last statement. I believe with some additional work and the game variations would be a much better game. I totally agree with that. I agree about the paucity of sound, too. It's kind of like, is this thing working? Oh, yeah, my my tank's moving. Yeah, it's working. (laughs) But I really do feel it could have been a lot more than it was. And I think I might have mentioned this before, but if I ever, for God knows what reason get the homebrew bug. I'm going to try something similar, but with the biplanes and jets. But having said that, don't hold your breath, everybody, because chances are virtually none that that's ever going to happen for me. <laughs> but thanks again, Great Defender, for your feedback. And and touching on the topic of episode two, Casey Munchkin, Bob Crescenzo posted a message on Atari Age And he says, and I quote, hi guys, I just wanted to take a second and post something that's been bugging me a little about Casey Munchkin. I've heard quite a few people mention the controls as being an issue with the game, and I just wanted to set the record straight. The controls in this port of KC were purposely programmed to mimic the way the Odyssey 2 version works. As a matter of fact, I had to rework the original routine to act this way. I have to say, anyone who mentions that the Odyssey 2 version controls any differently from this port has not played the Odyssey 2 version for any amount of time. Back in the day, my best friend had the Odyssey 2, and we played this game for literally hours on end frequently. Try it in O2EM, that's an Odyssey 2 emulator. Try it in O2EM even. Start moving in a direction and immediately try to reverse. You'll see that you can't until you reach the next grid location. There's an excellent description of how the controls of Casey Munchkin work, and he puts a link to that, and I'll I'll link that in the show notes too, by the way. And uh, a few posts down from the post in the link, it's a visual from Defender2600. That being said, this is not about a criticism of a game I have done. I welcome all comments, good or bad. For instance, I have deservedly received criticism for Space Duel for not including the tethered option. Truth be told, I couldn't figure out how to do it at the time. I get that, and it's completely warranted and understood, but it kind of irks me a little when I receive criticism for an aspect of the game that acts exactly like the original does. That being said, I have made a quick modification to KC here to allow the reversal of direction immediately instead of waiting for an intersection like the original. 
However, it will still wait for a grid location when coming to a stop, i.e. letting go of the joystick. Let me know if anyone likes this any better. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support and for having my back, Bob. And he posted two different versions of the ROM, one with the header, one without, and I will put a link to that thread in the show notes as well, so you can download those ROMs, try them in an emulator, or if you're lucky enough to have some kind of rewritable cartridge like the Cuddle Cart or the Mateos Cart for the 7800, you could try it on that too. So far, I haven't had a chance to try it myself, so I can't comment one way or the other. And speaking of Casey Munchkin and controls, that has been the biggest criticism I've seen. Like if you heard the Casey Munchkin episode, and if you heard um, Andy Ryerson's feedback in the previous episode, you'll hear that it's the controls that people are complaining about with that game. But that's how it worked on the Odyssey 2. And there's one other thing I have to mention here. When I was at Midwest Gaming Classic, there was a guy named John Payson who used to be on Atari. Well, he's technically still on Atari age. He goes by the username Supercat, and he did uh, several Atari 2600 homebrews. And he stopped by our table and chatted with us for a while. And he saw that I had Casey Munchkin for the 7800. He said, you know what? I want to try that out. And I took out the Casey Munchkin cartridge, put it in the 7800. And immediately he went to the maze editor and uh, built a maze that he used to do all the time on the Odyssey 2. He said that he played Casey Munchkin all the time on the Odyssey 2. And he wanted to see how it was done in the 7800. So he tried it and he was having a little bit of a problem. I said, John, t- uh, talk to me. What's going on here? And he said, the controls aren't right. I said, how do you mean? And he was talking about how nothing happens if he moves the joystick in a certain way. And it was my Ed Ladden controller he was using that has the four-way, eight-way switch on it. He had it in eight-way mode. And I told him, I said, the joystick is probably in eight-way mode. If you lift up the front of the controller, you'll see that right under the joystick, there's a ring you can turn. And that'll switch it over to four-way mode. So he did that, and he started playing again. He's like, ah, this is perfect. And I asked him, I said, how are the controls in the actual gameplay? I said, is there any problem with them? He said, no, this is exactly how I remember it. So testimony from a 2600 homebrew developer. And believe me, this guy knows what he's talking about. He will talk for hours about missile men and things like that. So that's what I had to throw in about Casey Munchkin. So, yeah, it's been a pretty busy past couple of weeks. So busy that I haven't even had time to play this week's game, which is uh, this week's, this Fortnite's game, I guess, which is Space Invaders, also a Bob DiCrescenzo Atari 7800 homebrew title. But before we get into that, let's talk about the history of Space Invaders. Space Invaders was designed by Tomohiro Nishikado, and uh, he worked for Taito. So ergo, it was Taito who released Space Invaders in Japan in June 1978. In July 1978, Midway released the game in North America. And later on in 1978, Midway released Space Invaders in Europe, and Allied Industries released it in Australia. So let's look at some history of both Taito and the game Space Invaders. The Taito Corporation was founded as Taito Trading Company back in 1953 by Michael Kogan, and he was a Russian-Jewish businessman. And think about that, a Russian guy founding a Japanese company. Now there's some culture blend for you right there. As with many other arcade video game manufacturers, 
such as Stern and Rockola, they're the, they're the first that come to my mind at least. Taito started out manufacturing vending machines, jukeboxes, electromechanical games, and eventually pinball machines. Taito America opened in Elk Grove Village, Illinois in 1973 with the sole purpose of licensing arcade video games to other companies for American release. Taito America would move a bit north to Wheeling, Illinois in 1985, and in May 1988, Taito America formed Taito Software in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where it would make games for home computers and also for Nintendo products. In 1991, Taito Software closed, and the home computer software would be developed back in Wheeling from that point on. And something I never knew until I did the research for this episode is that Taito actually planned to develop a CD-ROM-based home video game console. Now, I'm guessing this is an acronym. It was going to be called WOWWOWW. It got that name from a satellite pay-per-view TV station in Japan. They undoubtedly were going to be calling the CD-ROM system WOWWOW because the WoWOW console would have had downloadable content via satellite. And the plan was for the WoWOW to feature nearly arcade-perfect home conversions of its popular arcade games, much like what the Neo Geo home console did. Now, if you haven't heard of the WoWOW console, then you're probably correctly inferring from my context that it never was released. In January 1993, Taito went public on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and in October 2000, it merged with the Kyocera Multimedia Corporation, where it dove into the cell phone market. In August 2005, Japanese video game company Square Enix, I think that's how it's pronounced, E-N-I-X, I know many of you have probably heard of it, but anyway, but Square Enix bought a majority of shares of Taito, making Taito now a subsidiary of Square Enix. In 2008, Square Enix liquidated two subsidiaries of Taito that I've never heard of until now, quite frankly, the Taito Art Corporation, which, think about this, the Taito Art Corporation, it was a subsidiary that dealt with insurance and travel agency. Makes sense to me. The other subsidiary was called Taito Tech Company Limited, which was an amusement and maintenance subsidiary. And in February 2010, Taito Soft Corporation, which was responsible for home video games, split from Square Enix and was reabsorbed by Square Enix the following month. And to this day, Square Enix owns all of Taito's video game console franchises. And to keep things orderly, Square Enix merged all of the Taito subsidiaries in 2010 into one main subsidiary called Taito Corporation. In November 2016, Taito released Facebook versions of Space Invaders and Arkanoid, basically to kind of keep in touch with gaming platform trends. So that's a brief history of Taito. There is a lot more to it than that. But as is the case with many video game companies, you have all the restructuring, the acquisitions, merges, spinoffs. There's bound to be some detail missing or, forgive me if this is the case, incorrect. But let's talk a bit about the brains behind Space Invaders, Tomohiro Nishikado. There are a lot of different possible sources of inspiration that Nishikado had, and one story is that he was inspired by a dream he had in which a bunch of school children who were waiting to see Santa Claus were attacked by aliens. Another story is that it was inspired by a Taito game from 1972 called Space Monsters. 
But Nishikado denied that that electromechanical game had any influence. He said it was actually Atari's 1976 game Breakout that was his primary inspiration. And by the way, that's pretty plausible when you consider that one of his previous games, Western Gun, or as it was called in the United States, Gunfight, was based on another Atari game that involved a bat with a ball, and that's specifically Pong. Nishikado wanted to take the sense of accomplishment you get from busting bricks away and apply that sense of accomplishment to a new concept. First, he tried a game with a military theme, but he wasn't really happy with the result, and he also didn't like the technical limitations that prevented him from getting some good animation going. So, he read a magazine article about Star Wars, and he used that as an inspiration to go with a space theme instead of military, and he got further inspiration from the 1953 movie adaptation of The War of the Worlds. He named the game Space Monsters, supposedly after a popular song in Japan that was named Monster. And my friends, I saw that reference in pretty much every Space Invaders source I could find, However, I was unable to ascertain that as fact, and I could not find a popular song in Japan called Monster. Does anybody have any further info on that, like a YouTube link or whatever else have you? But the fact that the working title was Space Monsters, that might be where people got the idea that the 1972 electromechanical game Space Monsters was the inspiration, but it was probably a coincidence. Nevertheless, the higher-ups at Taito renamed the game Space Invaders. So, Nishikado spent a year doing just about everything with the game. The art, the sounds, the programming, and even the actual hardware. He built the game hardware from scratch based on the Intel 8080 processor. And despite all the work he put into, well, what is really a household name... Tomohiro Nishikado's contract did not allow him to reveal that he was the person behind the game. And of course, most of us know how Atari was similar with this, wouldn't allow its developers to take credit for those games. So obviously Atari was not the only one who did that. But there you have it. That's a condensed story of the history of Space Invaders. So let's talk about the gameplay. <laughs> But do we really need to talk about the gameplay? If you don't know how Space Invaders is played, then, well, here's an update for you as you awake from your coma. Donald Trump is president now. People are still complaining about Saturday Night Live because they haven't forgiven Belushi and Ackroyd for leaving. There were two new Star Wars movies just in the past year, and people outside of northern New Jersey have learned that big hair is ridiculous. But back to the gameplay. And just to make it short and simple, there are 55 aliens in five rows of 11. They are coming down to the Earth little by little, going side by side. You have to shoot them. They shoot at you. You have four destructible shields guarding you. And if the invaders land, the game is over, regardless of whether you have any of your original three lives or bonus life in reserve. Any questions? Good. What happens is the space invaders move back and forth across the screen from left to right and right to left. Once they reach the edge of the playfield border, the invaders drop down a level and move in the other direction. 
And even though we all know how to play the game, I figured it was worth mentioning this because you can use this as a strategy. And I'm surprised at how many people don't use this strategy. When I saw people play Space Invaders at Midwest Gaming Classic, people were just seemingly shooting the aliens just wherever they could shoot them. The best strategy usually is to shoot the invaders at the left ends and the right ends first, depending on which direction they're traveling, because what you want to do is delay when they're going to drop down a level. You want to keep them as high up, as far away from Earth as possible. And of course, common lore is that the more aliens you destroy, the faster they move. What some people don't realize is that was not intentional when Nishikado programmed it. It turned out that was because of system limitations. Because of the hardware in the original game, the game could not move as fast as Nishikado wanted it to move because it took time to process all of those aliens. So the fewer there are, the less the CPU in the machine has to do. And I mentioned earlier that, hey, the aliens are firing at you. Well, you can actually intercept their fire by shooting their bullets out of the sky. Now, the aliens, when they move closer to Earth, if they actually overlap with your shields, then they will actually start taking your shields out. Like once a row of aliens reaches the top edge of your shields, you're going to notice that the top edges of your shields are going to disappear. And of course, there's a big debate among Space Invaders fans. Do you keep the shields for your protection or do you just immediately shoot them away because the shields get in the way when you're trying to shoot at the aliens? Me, I don't know. I, I could go either way on that. What I usually do is I'll blast a single hole through a shield and just shoot through the hole and just hide out there for a while. So I don't know. It, it depends. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that debate. But there are large invaders, which are worth 10 points. There are medium invaders, which are worth 20 points. By the way, did you ever go to a like a snack bar or anything where they had two sizes, medium and large, and wonder why? Um, medium implies in the middle. You cannot have medium unless it is a middle size. Anyway, having said that, there are also small invaders, which will give you 30 points when you destroy them. And there is what is called a saucer that appears at certain points during the game, floats across the top of the screen. And if you shoot that, you get a seemingly random bonus of anywhere between 50 to 300 points in 50 point increments. Now, why did I say seemingly random? Well, because it seems to be random, but it's not necessarily random. Somebody figured out that you can get 300 points every time that saucer flies out by performing what is known as the Furrer trick, named after a guy named Eric Furrer, who figured out how to perfect that little method. And from what I can tell, this actually translated over to Bob's Atari 7800 port. So here's what you do. When the new level starts, count the number of times you shoot your laser cannon. When you fired 22 shots, just don't shoot anymore. Wait for the saucer to come up. And then if you shoot the saucer on your 23rd shot, you get 300 points. Now what you do is you count your shots again, but count to 14. And then your 15th shot should hit the mystery saucer 300 points again. 
and just continue counting to 14 and your 15th shot every time will get the saucer until that level ends. When the new level starts, start counting at 22 again and repeat that process. And one thing you got to keep in mind is it doesn't matter whether or not the shot hits an alien, hits a shield, or hits nothing. It's still counted toward that total. And really, that is all there is to the gameplay. There's nothing special beyond that. On the arcade version of Space Invaders, you, by default, you get three lives. Depending on how the arcade operator sets the dip switches inside, you could get four, five, or six lives. Also, depending on how the dip switches are set, you could get a bonus life at 1,000 points or 1,500 points. Now, in addition to that little trick I told you about to get 300 points for the saucer, there's another Easter egg that, if you Google it, I don't think you're going to find this. I might be wrong, but this is something that I read in a book. It is written by a guy named William Houndstone, and um, he wrote a series of what I call secrets books. There was Big Secrets, Bigger Secrets, and Biggest Secrets, and I think this came, these books came out in the uh, late 80s, possibly early 90s. And it, it's what it is. He talks about like things that um, are basically hidden for a lot of it is stuff that people by now know, like how they make carved turkey look so great in TV commercials and things like that. One of the books he talks about how David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And by the way, the explanation there, it's so easy. You'd probably smack your head and say, of course, it's obvious, but hey. <laughs> Oh, boy. But in Poundstone's book, Bigger Secrets, the second one in the series, he actually has a section on video games. He has a, uh, these are basically Easter eggs. He talks about one that's in uh, Donkey Kong Jr., another one that's in Dig Dug. He talks about Xevious. And let me read what he says about the Space Invaders secret that uh, I don't really hear many people talk about. And in terms of Bob DiCrescenzo's Atari 7800 port, I really don't know if this is incorporated. So, yeah, I could have asked him, but, you know, in today's economy, really. But having said all that, here's what William Poundstone says. It would be simple enough if the secret effect were triggered by an exceptionally high score. Space Invaders has a regressive scoring system. Try the game a few times and you think you're doing really well to score 800 points. Then you find out that lots of guys have broken 100,000 and someone in Japan hit 300,000. In its original release, the arcade machine could display scores of only up to 9,999. Taito had to retool it to display larger scores. Breaking 100,000 does not produce the effect, however. Space Invaders Secret has been triggered by rare players. It goes like this. You have to kill every invader but one, and that last one must be a skull. And uh, William Poundstone describes the invaders. There are coneheads, which are in the top, toasters, which are in the middle of the formation, and then skulls, which are in the lower part. So basically the somewhere in the first row. So anyway, going back to what he says... Normally, the skulls are the first to go. They're on the bottom, and you're shooting up through them, so leaving a skull as the last invader seems all but impossible. Each blast travels in a straight vertical trajectory from its point of fire. Meanwhile, the monsters are moving laterally. It's just barely possible to shoot laser blasts up in advance of the monster fleet, timed precisely so that the cone heads, that's the top row, by the way, 
run into them. You can take out the toasters, uh, that's the middle invaders, the same way. Of course, it requires flawless reflexes and absolutely stupendous eye-hand coordination. If you can manage this, leaving just one skull, the effect is activated. The last skull leaves a ghostly trail of scan lines. When it hits one side of the screen, it reverses and erases the trail. When it reverses again, it starts over. You still have to shoot the invader before it lands to continue playing. And uh, he goes on to say the deluxe version of Space Invaders, which is the one that has color, has a more elaborate effect. The last invader must be one from the bottom two rows, which in the deluxe version includes three toasters as well as the skulls. Zap all the other aliens and this one leaves a trail. If and when you blast this last invader, the result is a rainbow, puts that in quotes, a multicolored wedge covering most of the screen. It's orange, yellow, and green top to bottom. So interesting, interesting. I've never been able to accomplish that, by the way. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and uh, William Poundstone mentioned the deluxe Space Invaders. Space Invaders had several sequels in the arcade, the first one being Deluxe Space Invaders, which I believe in Japan was called Space Invaders Part 2, which, of course, as you heard me read from the Poundstone book, that it was a color version. The original Space Invaders was monochrome, and some machines have an overlay to make it look like it's actually in color, which was pretty common for the time. I know Super Breakout had something similar, but uh, anyway... Even this year, 2017, there's a new arcade version. It's called Space Invaders Frenzy. I got to tell you, I'm not a big fan of modern games, but oh my God, that thing looks amazing. It looks awesome. Uh, I'm going to have to see if I can find where there's a place nearby, if I can play it sometime. It really does look awesome. What it looks like, I, th I could be off base on this, but at least to me, it looks like it's a combination of kind of... Um, Original Space Invaders and Star Wars the Arcade Game, the original one, where you're actually aiming a laser sight at all the invaders, and it looks really, really cool. Um, I do believe it's also a redemption game, so it might be found at those newfangled redemption arcades. And hey, since I'm talking about arcade sequels, I might as well talk about home console versions as well. Now, a weird thing is that Taito did not do a lot to protect their legal ownership of space invaders. I don't remember the entire story, but there was some kind of a loophole that allowed a lot of video game makers to make clones. And of course, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the game Gorf in which one of the levels is a space invaders level. It is a blatant, blatant ripoff. The only difference is your laser cannon can move in eight directions instead of just two. And I think part of that is that midway made Gorf and Midway had the U.S. distribution rights to Space Invaders, so they're like, hmm, we could just reuse that in our game. <laughs> and of course, after you heard the Junior Pac-Man episode of this podcast, you probably understand that Midway was uh, not afraid to take some artistic liberties. But having said all that, of course, the Atari 2600 had Space Invaders, the 5200 had Space Invaders... Other systems, though, in television had a game called Space Armada that was a clone of Space Invaders. The Texas Instruments 99-4A had TI Invaders. The Odyssey 2 had Alien Invaders, and it just goes on like that. There were so many clones that 
these companies were able to get away with because of legal loopholes that Taito did not protect. <laughs> so, hey, that just opened up the door for for lots of companies to make their own Space Invaders game, and Taito couldn't really do much about it. And you can get Space Invaders in any number of game packs for modern and modern-ish video game systems like the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and whatever else have you. And now let's talk about specifically the Atari 7800 Space Invaders. Now, somehow I had missed the original release of the Atari 7800 Space Invaders, so my research was a little bit spotty on this, so I apologize. But it does appear that the first inkling of the Atari 7800 Space Invaders was on a post from Bob DiCrescenzo under the name Pac-Man Plus, of course, on July 20th, 2008. At the time, the Atari Age store was offline temporarily, so what happened was Bob had made a short run of 10 NTSC cartridges he didn't have a way of testing PAL. Of course, that prompted a huge flood of, ooh, ooh, put me on the list posts, and of course it didn't take too long before all 10 slots were filled. However, July 24th, Bob had posted that he was going to be canceling his quote-unquote reservation because there were so many people who contacted him and said, where's the ripple effect? And I didn't quite understand what he meant by that, so I asked him, hey, Bob, what are you talking about? What's this ripple effect he's talking about? Well, I never really thought of it, but in the arcade version of Space Invaders, when the invaders move, they kind of look like they disappear and reappear in kind of a wave, almost like a flag waving or a ripple effect. Uh, it's hard to explain, but I'm sure if you've seen it and you've noticed it, you know what I'm talking about. But due to the way that Bob had to make Space Invaders, he wasn't able to make it happen. Um, it, I think what happens is every frame, the invaders are redrawn. And because of the way that the Intel 8080 had redrawn it, basically you could tell that the invaders were reappearing in a certain order. Now, here's the explanation that Bob provided. He said, and I quote, In the arcade, it moves one invader each frame. This gives the effect of a wave movement. In my port, all invaders move within one frame in lockstep, like the 2600 version. This was mostly because the invaders are not sprites, but tiles. It was started that way, and I didn't want to change it at the time. But, considering what Bob had said there, it turns out that he wasn't able to actually do that wave effect. Later that evening, Bob says, and I quote, I will be honest, I don't have high hopes of the sprite way working, as two things that stick out to me immediately are, one, needing more memory for X and Y coordinates for each invader, being that they move separately. I was already out of memory using character mode. Also, two, I will now need to check both players' shots against 55 separate invaders instead of just checking under the shot as it travels up the screen to see if there's a uh, zero, zero hexadecimal or not under it. Um, <laughs> uh, I know that means something in low-level programming or medium-level programming, but darned if I can explain it better. <laughs> Unless I am missing some trick or something, I don't think there's enough time to do all this. That being said, I plan on giving it a try, and so uh, I guess he gave it a try, and obviously we know now that um, it didn't happen. 
but that doesn't detract it from being a great, wonderful conversion of Space Invaders, at least in my personal opinion. But on July 30th, Bob basically kind of implied that he was resuming his original Space Invaders the way that it was without the ripple effect. He was just waiting for donor cartridges and labels to come in so that he could actually make the cartridges. Some people who were testing the wrong files had problems with the mess emulator. So on August 1st, Bob updated the ROM and posted a new version of it. And I think it included a PAL version as well. On August 10th, the original reserve list had been expanded to 50 and I was number 32. So yay, I got on the list. I was so happy about that. On August 19th, 2008, a user named Nonner242 offered a 30th anniversary box for those who are on the reserve list. Somehow I must have missed that post because I didn't remember actually asking for one or whatever else have you, but I do have the box that Mark Oberhäuser made, and I will put a link to Mark Oberhäuser's website where you can order his boxes in the show notes. Keep in mind that if you're in the United States, you cannot directly order one via the online form. You actually have to contact Mark directly. On August 25th, 2008, Bob had posted that he decided not to make Space Invaders available through the Atari Age store due to some discussions that were going on in a Space Invaders 30th anniversary box thread. It was basically about copyright and uh, whether or not uh, there could be some uh, possible trouble in um, releasing a Space Invaders for the 7800. But of course, keep in mind what I said earlier about how Taito did not really do a good job protecting the Space Invaders property. So that might have something to do with why it did eventually end up in the Atari Age store and on GoodDealGames.com for a short time. On September 28th, 2008, Bob had posted a copy of the manual. Most of the text, he says, came from the manual that came with the 2600 version. When was the game actually released? Um, probably sometime in 2008. I don't remember the exact date that I got my copy, but hey, fact is, I have it. Lots of people have it, and it is a very popular game. If you go to the Atari Age store and go to the 7800 page, you will see Space Invaders in the bestsellers list. So yeah, it is a popular title. But you know what? Let me talk about the actual 7800 version as it appears. It's basically a clone of the arcade version. Sounds not so much. The sounds are a little bit closer to uh, what you would expect from a Space Invaders game on an Atari system. It's not going to have those booming explosions that you get from the original Taito arcade game, but that's okay. I actually like the Atari sounds on this. It actually sounds more natural. Um, the... 7800 version, well, if at least according to the manual, the saucer that I talked about, that's it's referring to the saucer as the command alien ship or command ship. And to be honest with you, I don't know if that's what Bob came up with or if that was cribbed from the 2600 manual. I haven't read the 2600 manual in a long time. Could I have? Yeah, but you know how us podcasters can be kind of lazy at times. <laughs> but it's basically, you. if you were to look at the 7800 version, you would think you were playing an arcade version. It actually even copies the font from the arcade version. And 
Not only did Bob kind of borrow from the manual of the 2600 version, he also borrowed from the gameplay because you can choose different variations of the gameplay. There's an option for moving shields in which the shields constantly move back and forth. You have an option for no shields, which some players might actually prefer. There are some options for zigzagging at laser bombs. There are some options for zigzagging laser bombs. You can play with no laser bombs at all, which means the only way the game will end is if the space invaders reach the bottom of the screen. And this was meant primarily for very beginning players and or children. There's an option for fast laser bombs. And there is an option for invisible space invaders. And also there is an option for different color schemes. And that's basically to simulate the different variations of space invaders that have appeared in the arcade. So once again, Bob DiCrescenzo went all out on making space invaders as close to playing the original thing at home as possible. And I asked for feedback on the two main forums, Atari.io and Atari Age. I flipped a coin and determined that I will address Atari.io first. Crossbow was the first to chime in, who says, Unfortunately, the only experience I had with Pac-Man Plus's port of this game was on the Pac-Man Plus collection cart that CPU Wiz put together. As a result, Space Invaders is bugged up and will lock up when you play any levels that have the shields. But I do remember it looked quite the part and sounded pretty good. I still think one of my favorite home ports of Space Invaders is the one that comes with YASI for the Vectrex. So I'm guessing by, I, I should have done some research on this, but I'm guessing YASI means yet another Space Invaders. Thank you very much, Crossbow, for your thoughts. I don't know if that was ever fixed. I don't think it was. But yeah, the multi-cart Bob DiCrescenzo collection on Space Invaders, if you play without the shields, you will not see the bug. But if you play with the shields, it has something to do with when a laser actually hits a shield, I think. I also think there's a bug with Moon Cresta on that cart as well. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Moving on to Trek MD. This is a game that needs no introduction. Space Invaders remains one of the classics in video game history and has even seen modernized versions released on new consoles and handhelds. Despite Atari having a hit with their 2600 version of the game, this was the game that put the 2600 on the map, they never created a port of the game for the 7800. That is quite surprising since the 7800 is certainly more capable and creating an arcade perfect port would have been possible at the time. Well, fear not, for Bob strikes again, and he has filled this gap in the 7800's game library. What Bob has created is a masterpiece for the console that not only looks great, but also reminds me of the many options Atari added to their version of the game. Space Invaders on the 7800 has arcade-perfect graphics and animation. The sounds are as close to the arcade as they come as well. Instead of having to scroll through 100-plus game versions, you get to select different things to change on the main menu for the game. Here you can select the bomb speed, whether the shields are fixed or move about, whether the invaders are visible or not, whether bombs zigzag or not, and you even get to choose a color scheme for the graphics. These schemes range from the basic white and green to the more colorful ones created with overlays on the arcade machines. Space Invaders is a must-have title for any gamer, and this version certainly has to be part of your game library if you own an Atari 7800. 
No argument from me there. And I think I can understand, though, uh, to go back to as to why the 7800 didn't actually have Space Invaders, it might be simply that, hey, it was 1984 when the 7800 had its soft release and 86 when it finally came out to the mass market. And Space Invaders itself was from 1978. What many people consider the definitive version is from, what, 1980, 1981, I think? So it's not really surprising that you didn't have Space Invaders on the 7800. A new console wants a new game, which is one reason a lot of people scratch their heads over, okay, why is Asteroids one of the launch title games? That's that's from 1979. Personally, I think it's the best Asteroids there is, but uh, that's just one guy's opinion here. But, hey, what are you going to do? And... My thought was, I'm going to be honest, when, when Bob did Space Invaders for the 7800, one thought I had, of course, my first thought was, why did I not know about this? I better hurry up and get me a copy, which I did. And my second thought is, well, they didn't have Space Invaders on the 7800 before this, but why not just pop in the 2600 Space Invaders? But hey, to be fair, the 7800 version is nearly arcade perfect. It has the proper number of aliens. It has a proper number of shields. So there you have it. Thank you, TrekMD, for your always thoughtful contribution. And the professor says, Space Invaders is one of my favorite games of all time. The 7800 port is the best home version I've played. It feels like the 7800 could do a lot more graphically, though. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the 7800 does have a lot more graphics capability, but if you're talking about being as close to the arcade as you possibly can, I think Bob nailed it. I really do. I think so. Thank you, the professor. And um, let's go over to the Atari age side. And this is interesting is uh, Bob himself commented in the, in the thread that I started. I wish I had made them move one frame at a time. Like the arcade does <laughs> toilet tune says, I like the different options, shields, colors, etc. The game looks and sounds and plays well. It absolutely does. Trevor says, it's the classic Space Invaders and then some. Once again, a fantastic port of a beloved arcade game under the 7800 is delivered in spades. The straight-up arcade original can be played, or a plethora of options can be selected, including various color schemes to match the overlays of variations and sequels, such as Space Invaders Part 2, Space Invaders Deluxe, etc. There are a total of four different color schemes to choose from. Colors are just the tip of the iceberg, though, as the other options include moving shields, no shields, zigzag laser bombs, no laser bombs, fast laser bombs, and invisible invaders. String two or three of the above options together, and even the most seasoned of players will find it to be very challenging. Mix it up nicely when two players are involved. There is not only the typical alternating turn configuration, but a simultaneous play competition mode, too. Sound is handled very well, and graphics are managed under the 320 graphics mode looking beautiful. Although the Space Invaders movement by frame is absent, the game plays very smoothly with responsive controls. Of course, the command alien ship is present, making it ever so tempting to go for those mystery points. Unless you absolutely hate Space Invaders, this is a most excellent port to own and a great addition to the 7800 library. Trevor, as always, thank you. Thank you. That was very well thought out. And I don't know anybody, at least any gamer, who hates Space Invaders. I mean, it's 
It's a classic. What can you say? And going back to that whole thing again about how the ripple effect isn't there. The, the redrawn by frame thing isn't there. Now, was that intentional by Nishikado? I don't know. I really don't know. It might just be a hardware limitation. Save 2600 says, don't have too much to add that hasn't already been said, but I really, really like the game. Just wish Space Invaders 2 slash Deluxe was an option, as there's enough of a difference going on with the sequel that I really enjoy. More so than the original, truth be told. But it's all good. Just glad to have the best Space Invaders port for play on an Atari system after all this time. Smiley face. Would really, really, really love a Lunar Rescue port someday. This Planet Sucks is good for what it is on the 2600, but there's some features in Minutia, not to mention graphics quality, missing, and feel the game deserves to see some proper love on the 7800. And there's a smiley face with hearts for eyes. Thanks, Save2600. Thank you very much for that. And you know what? I've I got a copy of This Planet Sucks. Uh, I bought that at um, Midwest Gaming Classic last year, and I played it. And especially when Ferg was about to do his episode on the 2600 Game by Game podcast, I played it, and I'll tell you exactly why the planet sucks. It's because its residents are stupid. You try to pull them up. You try to rescue them, and they run away from your ship. I mean, they they run away from the beam. Come on. I'm trying to rescue you. It's like, you know what? Let them die. Sorry. 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 Save 2600. (laughs) Oh, boy. Let's let's move on to other feedback here. Uh, Let's see. Oh, let's see. Ground Trooper says, I was just able to acquire the Bob DiCrescenzo 30th anniversary multi-cart from the very generous and talented CPU Wiz. Oh, by the way, I'm going to stop right there. Yes, I totally agree. CPU Wiz is both generous and talented. Really nice guy. And uh, when he was having some trouble that required a, um, I think it was a GoFundMe. It was some medical issues. So many people, including myself, were very happy to chip in a few bucks. I think it went way over the goal, which I thought was just awesome. And I, I believe he's doing much better now. Thank God. Anyway, going on to ground troopers feedback. He says, I thought since I needed to send feedback for space invaders, it would be a great opportunity to test it out with that cart. Unfortunately, the game totally froze up on me halfway through the first wave of invaders. I have read that there were issues with a couple of games in this cart. Luckily for me, one of the first three 7800 homebrews I purchased from the Atari Age store was Bob's Space Invaders. Taito's Space Invaders was one of the first video games that I ever saw or played at a bowling alley in the small Arizona town that I grew up in. Color Option 1, Black and White, takes me right back to my first experience with Space Invaders, especially playing it with my Ed Ladden Supreme 78 All Play 4-8. Like others have shared in their reviews, there are many great options and variations that make the simple play of Space Invaders different, fun, and very challenging like the 2600 version. I don't regret this purchase. My main reason for getting a 7800 last year was to finally acquire the console that I wanted to have back in the Ferg (laughs) to replace my 2600. I could never convince my parents to make that jump. I wanted a 7800 because of all the great arcade ports that were offered, While the 7800 arcade library is not as vast as the 2600, homebrew authors like Bob and Ken have made my 7800 purchase very worthwhile with the great arcade ports they have created. (laughs) And he signs it. This post is brought to you by Ed Controllers, Pac-Man Plus, and the Atari H Store. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, Ground Trooper, thank you so much there. And uh, that, and truth be told, this podcast is brought to you by all three as well. Um, Ed Ladin th- is a sponsor through Patreon. Uh, and if it weren't for Pac-Man Plus and the Atari Age Store, I think this whole podcast would have been finished by now. <laughs> But uh, great. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ground Trooper. I want to address something here. You talked about how it is a challenging game, just like the 2600 version. I didn't mention this earlier, but this is how challenging Space Invaders can be. The developer, programmer, designer of Space Invaders, Nishikado himself, said that he is terrible at it. He said that he has a very, very, very hard time getting past just the first screen, if he ever did get past the first screen. <laughs> makes And that's something I wanted to really think about it. It's like, if he can't get past the first screen, how did he QA this game and make sure that it actually worked properly? Uh, then again, I'm sure Taito had enough of a team there that uh, his coworkers could have tried it out for him. But uh, thanks again, Ground Trooper. And thank you, everybody who contributed feedback for Space Invaders. Now, as for how I feel about the Atari 7800 Space Invaders, It is a very well done version of the arcade Space Invaders. So kudos to Bob DiCrescenzo for a great job as always. I do have to admit one thing. It is not my favorite version of Space Invaders. I actually prefer the Atari 2600 version. I much prefer that even over the arcade version because it just seems it has more excitement to it. I think it really does. And I like the graphics better. I like how uh, the sprites are a little bit bigger. The Atari 2600 Space Invaders is the first video game I can remember playing, aside from uh, my brother's Pong console that he had uh, for a short time. But I remember playing it at my aunt and uncle's cousin's house, and uh, my uncle pulled out this video game system, and he plugged Space Invaders in, and I was like, wow, this is really awesome, and I absolutely loved it. And really, I think so many people have memories about when they first played Space Invaders, which one it was, and I did play the arcade Space Invaders for the first time. I'm thinking it was 1981. It was definitely Lincoln's birthday weekend when uh, my parents decided for whatever reason that we should spend the weekend at the Holiday Inn that was in the neighboring town. So it was my parents, my brother, and me. And every night we went to the game room at the Holiday Inn, and that was my first real major exposure to arcade video games. There was a Donkey Kong, and that was the first time I ever saw a Donkey Kong. There was a Pac-Man, and that was my exposure to Pac-Man. And from that night on, I was a big Pac-Man fan to this day. There was some kind of a motorcycle racing game that I didn't really look at that much. And there was also, of course, Space Invaders. And I was like, oh, cool. I didn't know there was a big cabinet version of that. So my brother and I played that for a while. And I th- there might have been a pinball machine, but I don't remember. But there was definitely a pool table. And uh, that was the Holiday Inn that was on uh, Route 50, State Route 50 in Bradley, Illinois. I think that Holiday Inn either was renamed recently or was demolished. I don't remember. I think it was just renamed. But having said all that, one thing I do want to say is at Midwest Gaming Classic at the Pie Factory podcast table, uh, both Jim and I were basically highlighting 7,800 homebrews, even though Pie Factory podcast is an arcade podcast. (laughs) But Space Invaders, Bob DiCrescenzo's Space Invaders was probably the most popular title of what we had out there we even had bentley bears crystal quest which people also love by the way 
but everybody kept wanting to go back to Space Invaders. So there's something about that game. And undoubtedly, it there's got to be a reason for it. Space Invaders arguably launched a video game craze that never really went away. I mean, yeah, there was the North American video game crash in 1983, but people were still playing video games on their personal computers. Space Invaders was a massive hit, so huge that there are stories of kids robbing banks and sometimes literally prostituting themselves in hopes of getting coins so that they could play Space Invaders. There were stories about how there was allegedly a shortage of 100 yen pieces in Japan. And of course, most likely that story is no more than just a story because there's so many holes in that story. (laughs) But having said all that, you cannot deny how influential Space Invaders has been. All over TV over the years, off the top of my head, I can think of uh, several TV shows that had some kind of Space Invaders feature in it, not necessarily the news. The Simpsons, Futurama, that 70s show, they all use Space Invaders as either quick gags or actual plot points. And the name of the game was used in the title of the documentary, The Space Invaders. And if you've never seen that documentary or heard of it, it came out a few years ago. And it is a documentary that highlights the hobby of collecting arcade games. And the arcade games themselves are the ones that are invading people's space because they're so huge. Hence, they are called the Space Invaders. See what they did there? But Space Invaders on the Atari 7800 is available in the Atari Age store. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. And it is the first game covered in this podcast that was included on the Bob DiCrescenzo collection, which was a very limited edition multi-cart that was released a few years ago privately on Atari Age. I think there were, what, 30 or 40 copies made? The only thing is, with the Bob DiCrescenzo collection, for some reason, there's something on that cart that interfered with Space Invaders. So it's a buggy version on that cart. But the standalone cartridge that is available in the Atari Age store is bug-free. So I guess that's going to wrap it up for this edition, Episode 9 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And, um, as always, you can reach out to me via email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, and then the actual number four, and then I-T. The show notes are located at homebrew78.fab4it.com. The Twitter feed is via the handle homebrew78, and I'll be quite honest, I don't really use that thing as much as I should. Uh, Thing is, I never really got into Twitter, uh, because either I have nothing to say, or I have too much to say that won't fit in just 140 characters, but I'll try to be better with that, folks. There's also a Facebook page for the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And if you go to atariage.com in the forums, go to the gaming websites and publications subforum, and there's a thread for this podcast. And every episode's topic is posted on the 7800 subforum on Atari Age and on Atari.io as well, where you can comment on the individual games. And also on Atari.io in the podcasts forum, there is a thread for this actual podcast. So everybody, thank you for listening. And uh, those of you who decided to listen to this podcast after going to Midwest Gaming Classic and seeing the Pie Factory podcast table, thank you for joining. In fact, everybody, thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything. 
and I hope you'll be back for the next episode, episode 10, by request, Crazy Bricks. Crazy Bricks. Talk to you all, um, later. Yeah, let's go with that. And as always, I ask, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. there is an Easter egg in the Atari 7800 Space Invaders. Now, before I talk about that, there's one Easter egg that I just want to mention really quickly, or at least I hope it's quickly. And many of you probably already know about this one, but in the Atari 2600 version, if you hold down the reset button while you turn the console on, you get double shots. So you can shoot twice at a time instead of just once. And that even works on the Atari Flashback Portable, by the way. Now, I asked Bob if he included that in some kind of an Easter egg in the 7800 version. He said no, but he wishes he did, and he put a little sad face on the response. But I told him, Bob, come on, don't be upset. You st- you're still the man. You still did an amazing conversion here that I can tell you people were loving at Midwest Gaming Classic. But there actually is an Easter egg in the 7800 Space Invaders. I I didn't even know about it. I just tried it once. Actually, at Midwest Gaming Classic, I just tried this, and this is a very common thing to do with Atari 7800 homebrews. Hold down the pause button while you fire up the console, and what happens then is that um, there is a new menu option. There's a menu option that gives you choices of Taito and Robert DiCrescenzo, and if you change it to Robert DiCrescenzo, The graphics are the 2600 Space Invaders graphics instead of the arcade graphics. So, there you go. There's a Easter egg for this game, and don't say you weren't warned. Bye-bye.